grace of God out here, son. It's just the land and all its spoils. My father, he sent me here when I was 17. I am Hanif. Hanif Khalil Abdullah. Mel. You have that to me. Because you helped me out back there, you reckon you're the boss, do you? I leave you here. You die. Crown marked gold. Only a fool to try and trade it with the mark of the crown on it. You must melt them. Me partner Jimmy got a large furnace. Will you get me there? You get what's yours. The Mount Magnet mine has been robbed. We need to move fast. Hanif, do not go with him. Restitution will be swift and severe. Getting cold feet, are you? Come on, son. Our man needs a furnace. In the name of the crowd! He's armed! It'd be good if we beat him to it. Why you do all this? It's gold, son. Man doesn't need a reason. This land took all I have. I will not go back empty-handed. It's a bit late for that. Stand down! This gold is your chance to be your own man. God knows what you have done. Drives me mad, boy. Hello. Is all that holds this hell of a place together? If ever you're gonna start praying again, now'd be the time. That's the trailer for the furnace. Hello and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eels. In this episode, I'm joined by Roderick Mackay, an extraordinary young filmmaker and someone I have a great deal of respect for. His new film, The Furnace, is one that I urge everyone to see when it's released nationally on December 10. To escape the harsh existence and return home, a young Afghan camelier partners with a mysterious bushman on the run with two 400-ounce crown-marked gold bars. Together, the unlikely pair must outwit a zealous police sergeant and his troopers in a race to reach a secret furnace, the one place where they can safely reset the bars to remove the mark of the crown. The story is set in Western Australia in 1897. Roderick and I know each other socially. We see each other around from time to time and we've bumped into each other on the streets of Fremantle, where he lives and where I work. I don't know Roderick on a deep personal level, but I know a lot of people who do. And from what I'm constantly being told, he's an incredibly hard worker and someone I believe a lot of young filmmakers can learn from. All of his hard work is certainly paying off. At the end of this interview, Roderick and I got chatting about Cinema Australia reviews. I told Roderick I prefer to put my focus into collecting Australian filmmaking stories, which he appreciated. It was here when I got to capture another great story about the making of The Furnace. You can hear that part of the conversation at the very end of this podcast, so listen out for that. 
I wouldn't recommend listening to this part of the conversation if you haven't seen the film, as it does contain some spoilers. I do alert you when it's about to start. Also in this interview, I mention an article that Roderick wrote for Cinema Australia in 2014 about his last short film, Factory 293. You can still read that article at cinemaaustralia.com.au. That will give you a deeper insight into Roderick's processes. Again, The Furnace is released nationally on December 10. Go and see it. Anyway, enjoy. Roderick, thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. It's great to have you with us. You're so welcome. It's uh, it's delightful to be here. Uh, While I was watching The Furnace, I was reminded of uh, Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale in that I was learning something about Australia's history that I wasn't taught in school. And I'm always frustrated by that and how suppressed these stories are in Australia's education system. So thank you for bringing something like this to the forefront and uh, congratulations on such a phenomenal film. Oh, thank you. No, that's wonderful to hear you say that. I mean, those were the same sentiments that um, really galvanised me to, to tell the story in the first place. Very much so. Fantastic. Life must be a bit of a whirlwind for you at the moment. I mean, uh, you managed to travel to Venice uh, to the film festival there um, uh, during a global pandemic. What was that experience like for you? It was pretty surreal. I mean, it would have been surreal uh, any year getting into uh, the Venice Film Festival, particularly with your, your debut feature film. But to go on that adventure during this global pandemic just kind of added a whole other layer of crazy to it, frankly. Um, there was the flurry to get the travel exemption permissions from the federal government and then just all of the, the headache of the added logistics of, of just getting there and isolating in Rome first for two weeks before then getting a train over to Venice. And then, of course, you've got your, your two-week hotel quarantine back here in Perth. Um, so I can say that I have done... Uh, as much time in self-isolation or hotel quarantine as the shoot of the film, which was <laughs> six weeks. <laughs> so how did the rest of the uh, cast take it and the, and the crew that you took over there? Oh, well, they were, I mean, everyone was delighted. Everyone was so ecstatic. Um, I mean, you know, this is really the little film that could type scenario. So, um, you know, everyone always had big dreams and hopes for the, the project, but uh dare I say, folk were probably still pretty surprised that we did actually land a, uh, a place as part of the Venice official selection, particularly as the only Australian film for 2020 um, in the entire official selection, which was, was pretty insane. Um, but it was fantastic to share that moment in person with Ahmed Malik, who joined us from Egypt. Of course, he's the, the lead actor in, in the film who plays Hanif. And um, our associate producer, Gary Bonney, who is a, a Wangatha Garpen man from um, Kalgoorlie, the goldfields in Western Australia, uh, he also joined us. Uh, my wife, Tessa Mackay, was there as well with us, which is fab. And, of course, our co-producer, Georgia White. So we did manage to wrangle a bit of a posse to still uh, represent the film in, in person on the world stage. And, look, I'll... I'll never forget it. It was an incredible experience. Fantastic. Uh, And, of course, you received some phenomenal reviews off the back of that screening. Uh, I'm sure it's an understatement to say that you're happy about the reviews, but do you buy into reviews? Have have you read them all? Are you one of those people who look for all of the reviews and read everything, you know, the critic or reviewer has to say? Oh, look, I'd I'd be lying if I um, said that I I didn't um, read... Not necessarily all the reviews, but a good a good many of them. I mean, you know, making a film is like a great big social experiment. So you, you know, you can't help but be intrigued as to how um, people respond to it, uh, particularly critics. So it's all just part of the journey, I guess. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> taking it on board. <laughs> uh, I was lucky enough to attend this screening with you the other night uh, in Perth, and, and I noticed that a lot of people were wanting photos with you. How, how does that sit with you for people coming up to you and asking for photos? Oh, it's very bizarre. Um, <laughs> it's, it's incredibly strange and something that I'm not at all used to or uh, anticipated. But it, at the same time, it's, it's lovely. It's, mm. it's, it's really sweet. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I guess it's some sort of affirmation that the film has struck a chord with them. So, so no, it's wonderful. Great. Actually, can you tell our listeners about that particular screening? Because it involved uh, some important people to you, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Um, so we have been running a few advanced screenings, uh, not just in Perth, but around the country. We've got one in South Australia tonight and in Brisbane, sort of in parallel to the Australian premiere of the film in, in Perth. And and they're really about uh, engaging the grassroots communities who are represented in this film. So that's the Sikh, Muslim and Hindu community, um, because, of course, the Cameliers did come from those various um, religious groups. They weren't just the, the Afghans as, uh, or Gans as they um, have sort of been incorrectly referred to historically. They were a multitude of people. So uh, this film's always been trying to demystify that, that um, idea. And so, uh, yeah, we had members from the, the Sikh community, the Muslim community, the Hindu community there at this Perth screening um, in the hope that they respond well to the film and want to shout it from the rooftops to their communities. So, so it's just so important to us that the communities are aware this film exists because we, we hope that it makes them walk a little taller um, as Australians, as they, as they should, yeah. rightfully should do. Um, I want to go back for a moment. Uh, I remembered recently that you wrote an article for Cinema Australia about your short film, uh, Factory 293, back in 2014. Uh, I took a look back at that article and I can't believe how far you've come, especially after seeing The, the Furnace recently. How do you look back on that experience of making Factory 293? Goodness, I'd be so intrigued to, uh, to read that. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you know, it, it's been a good few years. It's been uh, uh, six years since Factory 293. Um, and look, I guess the, the biggest thing that I took away from, from that film, I mean, it, it you know, it, I think its strengths were um, its, its world building, and I guess that's kind of what I was hell-bent on on that particular project, this whole audacious idea of turning Midland uh, in Perth into blizzard-swept Soviet Russia uh, in the 1940s. Um, but I felt that the, the story that I wanted to tell didn't quite make it uh, to the screen. That weird sort of transposing that goes from script to screen was not so successful, and so I pretty much went away and decided to focus on honing my craft as a, as a writer. Mm. Um, and hence I haven't made anything since factory 293. It's, it's just really been the script for the furnace. And, and part of that's because there's such a huge research component to the furnace because of the history that it is um, looking to spotlight. Mm. So I, I, I guess that's the biggest sort of chip on my shoulder that I had off the back of factory 293 was like, I really want this story to work. Mm -hmm. um, and it had to because it was being representative of uh, these community groups. So I, I didn't want to let them down. Mm -hmm. um, so describe The Furnace for us uh, in your own words. Tell us what it's about. So The Furnace centres on a young Afghan cameleer who is desperate to escape a harsh existence in the Australian frontier. And in his desperation, he falls in with a mysterious white bushman who happens to be on the run with two 400 Oz crown marked gold bars. And so together, this mismatched pair has to outwit a zealous sergeant and his trooper squad 
in a race across the gold fields to reach a secret furnace, which is the one place where they can melt down the gold and reset it to remove the mark of the crown. So uh, it is, you know, a, a fairly traditional uh, adventure. Um, you know, guys have got to get from A to B and survive the journey um, set in the outback, specifically in Western Australia's gold fields uh, of the 1890s. Mm. And, and that's one of the exciting, uh, well, hopefully one of the exciting parts of the project is that it's bringing Western Australia's gold rush to the screen for the first time, which that in itself is, is an amazing chapter in, in history. But then in doing so, the, the real focus is to spotlight the little known history of the Cameleers, who did play this incredibly important role in the formation of uh, Australia. Mm. And this goes back over 150 years ago and uh, the role that they played was in um, freight transport to uh, the colonies and inland settlements that sprung up around gold discoveries. And of course, just exploration, just opening up um, this vast desert inland that we have in Australia, which was otherwise pretty inhospitable for everyone other than Aboriginal people. And of course, the film also touches on the very special relationship that, uh, that the Cameleers shared with Aboriginal people um, and, you know, it, it is true that many of the Cameleers' freight routes often followed uh, Aboriginal song lines. So mm. it's it's really incredible history, but it's but it's first and foremost a piece of entertainment. It's it's a it's an outback adventure with guys on the run with gold. So hopefully there's a little bit of something there for everyone. Just hearing you talk about it makes me want to go and watch it again. <laughs> um, the, the film's producer, Tim White, uh, he mentioned that you first pitched the film to him as a uh, kind of there will be blood set during uh, WA's gold rush. And uh, I'm just uh, wondering, was that film a major inspiration for The Furnace? Uh, well, look, I, I have a pretty unhealthy obsession with um, there will be blood. It's a pretty <laughs> incredible film. Um so look, I, I think there might be, oh God, some, you know, in, in, in moments, in isolated moments, some sort of tonal influences from There Will Be Blood. But uh, I think this is a more sentimental and plot-driven film than yes. There Will Be Blood. Mm. Um, so it's, it's structurally and mechanically a different kind of beast. So, uh, so you were born and raised in, in WA and uh, the furnace is filmed in the amazing Midwest, which isn't as famous as our southern and, uh, and far north regions, but equally beautiful. Uh, did you visit the Midwest much as a kid and, and travel to these locations featured in the film? I did not no. at all. Um, so, yeah, I, I am born and bred Perth, West Australian um, lad, but no, I had never really explored the Midwest until uh, I embarked on making this film. And I guess I became aware at a certain point that uh, if you want to draw on some really quite dramatic goldfields country uh, in Western Australia, you, you sort of have to go as far as the Midwest to around Mount Magnet um, for it to start to get really quite interesting um and you know you, you start to get all the breakaway systems and salt flats and great big granite monoliths that are like mini airs rocks and um still get some tendrils of the great western woodlands sneaking up there and it, it's just quite diverse in terms of the country uh, uh, that you can shoot in and it feels very cinematic and and the southern gold fields is actually it, it's quite wooded it's quite vegetated and it and it's I always struggled to figure out how to aestheticize that region. And so this is very early on in the piece. And, and, and then the decision to film in the Midwest goldfields actually had an impact on the shape of the story. Mm. Um, 
And uh, that, of course, is Yamaji Bunimaya country. Right, right. And uh, you'll know what I'm talking about here. The people who haven't seen the film, you know, you will you will know soon enough. But uh, uh, did you come across any palm trees with water, or how did that come into the story? <laughs> well, uh, there are um, date palms in the outback that mm. do go back to the Cameliers, um, and so that that moment in the film that you're referencing is a nod to that and and as you can imagine we did search we thought we'd try our luck and see if there did happen to be any uh camelier date palm oases out um in the midwest and and sadly we didn't find any so um we we ended up taking a palm tree um filming a palm tree that is actually on um next to the canning bridge uh uh, in Mount Pleasant, right, uh, right, and uh, comping that into our um, our Midwest Goldfields um, date palm oasis setting. And Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> so there, there's actually a sad tale there. Um, I mean, I hunted around for the well. Initially, before we decided that we would digitally comp them in, we did explore actually, you know, getting some palm trees and, and freighting them and putting them in. But it would have cost an ungodly amount of money. Those yeah. things weigh. Just tons and tons, um, but we did we did go there, we did explore it. But uh, so when we realised we had to do it digitally, I think I drove around Perth for about three days in post production looking for some palm trees. But of course they're all very well tended um, and and you know manicured. And I found this one really scrappy, um, you know, forgotten date palm beside Canning Bridge, like just on the other side of the bridge from the the Raffles yep. Hotel. Um, and it was perfect and, and we filmed it and it, and it, you know, it looks brilliant. And then my wife was driving to her studio in Fremantle, you know, a few days later and the council was chopping it down. Oh, unbelievable. So Vale said palm tree of, um, Canning Bridge, but may it live on forever. Unreal. What a story to tell. That's fantastic. I love that kind of stuff. But sad yeah. for the sad, sad for the tree, of course. But <laughs> indeed, you know, we, we had big plans for that tree. It was yeah. going to, you know, be a, a, a tourist attraction. So <laughs> it was going to be a star. <laughs> indeed, <laughs> that's great. Um, so you've said that you were researching uh, WA's eighteen uh, nineties uh, gold rush when you first came across the Cameliers, and it got me wondering: were you researching that particular time with another idea for a film in mind? Yeah, I sort of was. I mean, I, I generally just was of the view that this is an incredible chapter in Western Australia's history. Um, I'm sure if I research it, I'll, I'll find some interesting um, fodder for, for stories. Uh, and then, of course, in particular, the most notable, um, I guess, character um, from the, the 1890s gold rush in Kalgoorlie and Coolgardie was that of um, Herbert Hoover who went on to become the 31st president of the United States. Yes. Um, and he was a real maverick um, uh, at this time in the gold sector uh, in Western Australia. And so I was, I was sort of interested in that. Um, and, you know, I think someone probably will one day make a fantastic film about that, that there is a, a cool story there. Mm. And it was amidst that that I, I stumbled upon an image of uh, the Cameliers in their full traditional garb, flanked by camels, but in the otherwise very familiar and somewhat tired, dare I say, outback setting. Mm. And um, those first images that I saw were in the, the books of Emeritus Professor of History, Geoffrey Bolton, who, who passed away in 2015. But actually, I, I got to chat with him a good few times um, before he did pass away. And he, he was very generous with his time to me. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I was just captivated from from the moment I saw um, those images. It struck me as being hugely cinematic. Uh, and you know, as an artist, you're always looking to do something new um, and show another side to um, you know whatever subject matter it is you're trying to tell. And so this felt like a, a huge opportunity. And then, of course, reading into the history of who these people were and how important their role was um, in the formation of the country. Uh, well, that's when the idea takes on a whole other life in your mind and you, you, you suddenly um, are incredibly galvanized to sort of correct this historic omission um, that you feel, you know, you, you should have been taught in, in high school or yes. in university and you can't help but actually feel a little bit deceived. Um, and I know when I've told people about this history um, that they have responded in, in similar ways. They, they've been almost outraged that they didn't know about this. Mm. Yeah, it's a real shame. Um, just as an aside there, uh, uh, Hoover's residence is still out there, isn't it? I mean, tourists can go and stay uh, in, in his actual room out there. Yeah, I believe you can you can sleep in Hoover's bed. Mm. Yeah, you can. And uh, apparently his wardrobe's still there, all of his, uh, his desk and everything that he used. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. Incredible, yeah. And it's on the edge of this huge uh, open-cut mining pit. Mm-hmm. You're listening to the Cinema Australia podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or cinemaaustralia.com.au. Um, there's this, uh, there's a great paragraph in your director's statement about uh, the conditions while making the film and, and there's this great line that I'd like to read back to you where you say uh, there was an ensemble of 30 cross-cultural characters with dialogue spoken in five different languages, four of which I don't speak and one of those is a sleeping language. I absolutely love that. It, uh, it sums up your experience but it also sums up the film in a way too. Um, can you tell us a bit about this sleeping language? And because uh, I think it's one of the most fascinating stories uh, to come out of the making of this film. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, um, no, I, I certainly um, had my work cut out for me um, linguistically on this film, and and no more so than with the Buddy Ma language, because in in two thousand eighteen, the last true speaker of the Buddy Ma language, sadly passed away um and of course at this stage we had committed to make the film in mount magnet um with with that community the yamaji buddy Maya community um but but the task was suddenly going to be a lot more difficult to translate significant portions of the, the dialogue in the script from english into buddy Maya. so it was no we no longer had this one pillar of knowledge within the community to help us with that translation process mm -hmm. we had to um I guess, conduct a more holistic community consultation that drew on shared fragments of knowledge uh, for the language. Um, but, you know, we, we got through it. Um, and, you know, I have so much admiration to the Buddy Meyer community for taking on that challenge to rising up to it, because this, this old fellow who passed away was a really, really significant man. And it was a very delicate time for the community having, having lost him. Uh, and, and so they could have very easily just gone, no, this is all too much for us to take on right now. Mm. Um, but, but they didn't, and, and they, they wanted to honour the life of this man. Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely one of the most special parts of the project. Um, you know, the, we are doing our bit. You know, everyone is doing their bit to help preserve this, this language because sleeping languages can be woken up. Yes. Fantastic. Uh, Cinefest Oz is a, is a very special uh, festival for me. It holds a special place in my heart because I've made some lifelong friends down there, you know, from all over the country. Uh, this is where you met David Wenham, right, for the first time? 
Correct. Yes, a very Western Australian tale. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, um, I always had envisaged the character of Mal for David. Right. I, you know, had been of the view that David was, you know, he's a name. We 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 know him. He, he's much celebrated here in Australia. But mm. I still sort of felt like he was underutilized. Yes. Um, and so I wanted to write a character that was really for him. Um, and that would draw on his inherent strengths as a character actor, but try and repurpose them to a, a character the likes of which audiences had never quite seen him in before. So um, I, I twisted the arm of um, Helen Shervington, the chair of Cinefest Oz, to <laughs> allow me to meet David when he was uh, at, at the festival in 2015. And um, I, I think we, I, we met up uh, early the next morning after... Um, there was a big gala event, and I, I think we, you know, bonded over um, enjoying some Panadol together uh, <laughs> yes. in, in the foyer of the cinema in Busselton. And I just sort of there and then pitched the film to him, and um, and you know, it touches upon so many of the subjects that he's already passionate about. So it it, it really struck a chord with him, and then. I sent him uh, the script. Uh, actually, some months later after that meeting, I sent him the script because I had written another version of it and I realized it wasn't going to work. And I had strayed off course and I, I threw that script in the bin and started again. Did mm -hmm. a page one rewrite, which wow. is always terrifying. Yeah. Um, you fork in the road for a writer. <laughs> but so then I, I got in touch with him with this new script, the first draft. And um, I, I think I heard from his agent sort of four days later saying he read it over the weekend and uh, he's on, let's do this. Oh, wow. So that was, yeah, that was a huge moment for the project. Yeah. So, so what was, what's your favourite uh, David Wenham or, or Daisy as is affectionately known in the industry? Uh, what's your favourite uh, David Wenham film? I, I think, um, look, I'll, I'll be a sucker and, and just confess right up that I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. Right, so, right. So, so Faramir is definitely, you know, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty up there. Yeah. But um, uh, look, um, it's, it's Spitz Vittore. It's got to be. Yes. And it's, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's the furnace now, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I, I, I really do think this is, is um, I'm biased, but mm. I do think this is one of David's. Uh, best performances. Yes. Uh, I hope audiences agree with me. He's certainly getting better uh, as his career goes on, I'd say, personally, uh, after watching um, uh, Dirt Music recently as well, which is another West Australian film. I absolutely yep. loved him in that film, I think. Yeah, he, he, he kind of... His, it feels like he's going to a different level now as an actor. Um, right, and, and it's great to see. Uh, I love that story about Cinefest Oz because it's also where Hugo Weaving met uh, Paul Ireland and, uh, and Dame Hill after watching porno and uh, they okay. went on they went on to make uh, measure for measure together which is due out next year so it's definitely a film festival where things happen and if you're a young aspiring filmmaker get down there because who knows what's going to happen there you go indeed <laughs> no, that that's um i didn't know that that's great to hear yeah they met in a bar uh, late, late one night after a few drinks and the rest is history um, so, uh, you know, we all expect David to be great, uh, but this uh, young actor at the forefront of this film, uh, Ahmed Malik, uh, is, is so impressive in this. And uh, you've said that you came across him on YouTube. What was your, feast, uh, what was your first meeting with him like? So this is um, like, uh, this, this, I wish there was a more um, captivating tale <laughs> as to how I, I discovered him and it just <laughs> makes me sound like some ignorant, stupid white man. But... Um, <laughs> We it was really tricky to cast the role of Hanif um, 
for a myriad of reasons. And I was sort of at my wits end. And I just, as a joke, typed in Middle Eastern actors into, into Google. And um, this video extract came up and, um, you know, uh, I just thought, bugger it, I'll click it. And uh, <laughs> this, this extract from a show that Malik is in, in, in Egypt, which is like a, a soap opera, it's like a home and away type thing, um, fired up. And, and it was all in Arabic, so I had no idea what anyone was saying. But there was about like 12 characters in this scene and like Malik was right at the center of it. And it, it was all eyes on him. And um, it, was, it was a big emotional scene. And I was just, I was captivated. I was completely transfixed by uh, this, this young man's performance, mm. um, even though I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> and uh, I thought this just could be crazy enough to work. You know, who is this guy? Mm. Um, and then sent the clip on to my producers, Tim White and um, to Neil Kennedy, and they responded the same as me. Mm. And so then we sent his name on to our casting director, Nikki Barrett. Um, and, and the rest is history, really. <laughs> we, we had... Um, I had a Skype with him and he'd read the script prior to the Skype and uh, he, you know, he wasn't short of, he was short of begging me really to, to say yes, to have him on board as the, um, as our Hanif. Wow. Um, he, he really, really wanted it. Um, and I think that just speaks so much to his, um, I guess, curiosity mm. uh, as, as an Egyptian actor who would have been 23 at the time. Mm. Um uh, in in this place called Australia and this and this history that not even most Australians know about and taking a chance on me as a, a first time director because he's he's quite a big deal in Egypt he's a he's a real superstar mm. um, and uh, he really plumbed the depths of of the script you know everything that I was sort of trying to comment on thematically beneath uh, this this sort of plot driven story about these guys in the run with gold and. Um, all of the internal struggles of Hanif and how that cross-sected with with Mal's mm. respective internal struggles and so forth. Um, he 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 got it all. I mean, the guy is is incredibly intelligent and insightful, um, mm. and he forever now will be Hanif, which is just um, incredible. Brilliant. He's a very photogenic man too, and uh, he seemed to really embrace the spotlight uh, at the film festivals recently. Is this is this something that comes natural to him? You know, did did you see that in him? I have a sneaking suspicion it does come naturally to him. <laughs> well, look, he's been famous uh, from a very young age, right, from sort right. of 12 on, yeah. so he's, he's pretty well well versed. But yes. that would also make you think he's, you know, like a precocious brat, but no. he's not. He's yeah. so grounded, yeah. um, so humble, um, and was just so happy to kick about in Mount Magnet, mm. you know, with us, um, <laughs> and, and, of course, Cal Barry, where we also shot. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, he, he, he is a good-looking fellow. He's mm. kind of like... Um, an Egyptian Shia Booth. Yes, uh, Egyptian yes. John Snow. Yes. Um, I, I've got a few left of field uh, questions here. That uh, firstly, uh, an incredible film came out of WA last year called uh, Judas Collar, and it was a short film uh, which also featured a lot of camels. Uh, I'm sure you've have you seen that one. I have. Yeah. Uh, were any of the camels used in uh, in the furnace used in Judas Collar? Were they, were they the same camels? Mate, all the camels, yeah. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, same camels. <laughs> yeah. So those camels, you know, deserve their own IMDb page now. <laughs> they do. <laughs> what was it like working with them? Did you reach out to Brooke and, uh, and Alison to ask them about working with the camels? Uh, a little bit. Um, I, I guess uh, because we knew that it was um, the Kalamunda Camel Farm, and that's mm. Kalamunda with a C, yes. um, for, instead of a K, as it's normally spelled, um, 
because we had access to Chris Ahura, who who is our sort of um, camel master, I, I, I guess we just went right to the source and, and asked him, um, you know, what we we're in for. <laughs> um, but we were making a very different kind of film to yes. Brooke and Ali. Like they um, were doing something, frankly, much more difficult than us because they just had camels standing alone in the frame with no humans sort of holding on to them. And, and, you know, we're hoping that the camels would, would do what they wanted them to do. So we had, you know, our camels were always being led by a camelier or, yes. or a, a human character. So, you know, they were much more like warm props in our film than actual characters like they were in, in Judas Collar. Yeah. But, you know, we, we still, um, I hope, make, um, give some scope to the, the, the character of, of Leela, um, yes. which is kind of the star camel um, at the centre of the furnace. Beautiful. I'm, I'm glad I got to capture that story because as soon as I saw them, I thought, oh, Judas Collar, there's something familiar about these camels. <laughs> how many how many camel wranglers can there be in, uh, <laughs> in Metro Perth? That's true, very true. <laughs> um, <laughs> secondly, and this one might be a little more left to fill, but there's a sign on one of the buildings in the town called T.F. Kennedy Building Supplies, and I wondered if that was a reference to the film's producer, Tennille Kennedy. It is. It well, is? Well, well, well spotted. <laughs> That was, uh, I'm having a win here. Usually when I ask these questions, people say, no, what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, you're, you're, yeah, you're paying attention, mate. Um, no, that, that was the um, comedic talents of um, Clayton Jauncey, a uh, production designer, oh, I love who uh, also has, has, um, uh, did install the Mackay and Sons uh, Butcher right. um, and the Tim White Chaff Feedstock. Um, <laughs> structure as well so yeah the director and the two producers got got um immortalized in our little our little western town beautiful that's that's lovely um so i've got a few more questions here before we wrap up but uh, we'll get back on track uh, you seem to have such an intense uh, determination to nail the authenticity of this story and uh, and rightfully so because uh, film filmmakers have a certain responsibility to culture and uh, it made me wonder if that desire for authenticity uh, clashed with your creative license as a filmmaker uh, i hope that question makes sense yeah, no, it makes sense. Mm. Um, no, look, I honestly never did find that they clashed. Mm. I mean, the balancing act on this project was, um, you know, we wanted to make the film accessible for a wide audience. Mm. And so at, early on in the piece, the, the decision to draw on the Western genre to give it a sort of accessible form felt um, like a right, like like the right idea, and also given it was set during the gold rush, which was a semi-lawless outback frontier. Um, so, so on one hand, you've got um, these genre elements to draw on uh, to to manage, but then you have the historic intent um, that uh, you're focusing on first and foremost. And and so I just made sure that that all of the genre stuff had to service the historic. Uh, intent. Yes. So first and foremost, we want to shine a light on this history. We want to draw the Cameleers into Australia's mainstream historic vernacular and mythologizing of the outback. Um, and so, yeah, just making sure one didn't cannibalize the other. Um, but, you know, there, there is a, there has been a great deal of attention paid to authenticity, but at the same time, you know, there, there are things that are made up, obviously, because yes. it's a fictional story. So, you know, there was no Chadwick Freight Co., which... No. Um, you know, the Cameleers around the middle of the film uh, work for. Um, and, you know, some guys didn't run off with two 400 Oz um, crown marked gold bars yes. and uh, various things like that. And so, um, but 
you know, in, in many other instances, um, yeah, we have been very, been as diligent as we possibly can um, to, to representing things authentically. But it all seemed to sort of gel together. It really does. It yeah, really, okay. really does. Yes. Uh, great answer, by the way. Um, so can, can we expect more WA films from you? Are, you? are you longing for an international career overseas or are you thinking of sticking around and, and uh, exploring more of these WA tales? Look, um, uh, never, never say never to the um, the international side of things, but I guess you know <laughs> the industry around the world is uh, you know in a, in a bit of a state right now. So yes. I, I I think um, they're they're figuring out just how to get through the day um, before calling me for <laughs> their gig. Um, so um, I, I am very much keen to continue telling stories in Western Australia, and frankly, I, I do like this little arena mm-hmm. of um frontier mythology uh and i'd like to continue um to play in that arena big time beautiful we'd love to have you stick around um i got one final question and i ask everyone this uh have you seen any australian films lately that uh, that really stood out for you look i am gonna sound like a terrible terrible australian audience member and australian filmmaker i have just been so <laughs> busy with um the uh, the release of the furnace we got our, we have our Australian premiere tonight and then we're releasing across 110 screens on December 10th mm. and um, I have been very hands on with my team in in prepping for the the premiere tonight and the release which includes of course all of the engagement with the various uh, religious ethnic and cultural community groups yes. um, that, that are represented in the film. So that's my long-winded, um, shameful answer or, or justification for saying I, I haven't actually really watched much at all of late. Completely understandable. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, no. I'll, I'll catch up over the Christmas break. Go I'll and see Rams. Brilliant. I will. I absolutely will. Yeah. Um, Roderick, thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to share these stories with us. That's what my mission is, is to collect these uh, Australian filmmaking stories. And, and you've given us some fantastic ones here. So thank you again and uh, congratulations on the film. Thank you so much. It's a really, really noble thing you're doing. Um, so, yeah, th- thank you for helping share these Australian film stories and, and uh, for, for getting the word about The Furnace out there to all your your listeners. Thank you so much, mate. Thank you for listening to the Cinema Australia podcast. You can keep up to date with all the latest Australian film news, reviews, features and interviews at cinemaaustralia.com.au. Hey, are you still there? Remember at the beginning of the podcast I mentioned an extra bit at the end? Well, I'm about to start playing it here. There are some spoilers, so be warned. But if you've seen the film, I definitely recommend having a listen. Look, that's a fair call. I can appreciate how you can better, you know, service the the, the, the medium and yes. the sector by, by, yeah, taking that approach. No, yeah. I hear what you're saying. Yes, yeah. and uh, if, it, if it means anything to you, I, I absolutely love this film. And I've got to say, man, like, even though, like, the entire film is great, but I cannot stop thinking about the last half hour of this film. It's, oh, wow. It is phenomenal. And, and, yeah, everything about it from the, from obviously the story to the cinematography, the acting, it just, it feels like, it, the film just goes to another level from that from that last last half, half hour onwards, and that's oh, not brilliant. that's not being disrespectful to the rest of the film as well no, because no, I absolutely love good. that. But 
yeah, holy shit, man. Wow. What no, you, well, look, what... a, 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 I mean, a film should always, um, you know, leave you on that climactic kind of um, upward lift, Yes, I, I guess. So, yeah. so no, I, I love that. That's, yeah. that's wonderful. So what, that's from like about the time Hanif arrives in the gorge? Yeah. Yes, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's just so no, rare for an Australian film to end the, the way that you've ended The Furnace. Um, yeah, oh. you, usually you walk away from an Australian film remem- remembering the beginning or the middle. But yeah, this one's fantastic. Oh well, well, we did. I know you've probably got to go, but I'll give you the no, last no, little, no. little um, addition just on on that on yeah. that note. Um, when I you, you may recall, I mentioned before that I had a version of the script and I threw it in the bin and I started again. Yeah. Um, and when I did start again, I, I started knowing very very clearly what the ending was. Yes. Um, and the entire story was sort of reverse engineered out mm. of the ending. Wow. And, um, and, and it was in service to the history that the ending, um, you know, homages, yes. um, which, you know, I, I won't say what that is because just in case you do include this in yes. the interview. Yeah. Um, but um, we, 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 so we wanted to service that, that history, that dimension of the history. And we also wanted to leave the audience with some hope because it's quite a, a tough story at mm. times and mm. confronting. And so it was important to leave the audience with a sense of hope. And we were very mindful of how do we want the audience to feel when they leave mm. the cinema? Mm. Um, that was that was at the forefront of our of our minds along mm. uh, much of the journey of this film. So yes. that's wonderful to hear you say that about the end of the film. 